Please be seated. I grew up in a community of faith that admired the New Testament church. We held it up as the goal of all true churches, and Bible study was often scouring the New Testament for pointers to what this New Testament church looked like. And we usually found all those pointers in Paul's exhortations and the imperatives, the do's and do nots. Along the way, it finally hit me. Corinth was a New Testament church. And that church was a hot mess. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is that the only reason that the New Testament exists is because there were no New Testament churches. There were no churches that had it figured out. There were no churches that walked in perfect obedience and complete transformation where the apostles were writing and saying, just want you to know all the really great things you're doing. In fact, the reason the letters exist is because the apostles were writing to correct errors. They were writing to correct behavior. They were saying, you guys are clearly not New Testament churches. That's why the New Testament exists. Here, to illustrate, here's a quick rundown of some of the issues that Paul addresses as he writes the Church of Corinth. He addresses division, pride, trusting in human wisdom, a guy sleeping with his stepmom, greed, partying, drunkenness, swindling, defrauding, suing each other, idolatry, classism, marital discord, judgmentalism, disorderly worship. And I know I've missed a few. I've thought about printing that up on a, a little laminated card and sending it to all the rectors of the parishes of the diocese with this little thing on top that says, at least your congregation is in Corinth. So like on a bad day, the rector could kind of look at me like posted next to his computer screen and he'd be like, okay, well, I've only got half those. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. As we come to our epistle reading, I want you to hear Paul's heart for this crazy, messed up community that he nonetheless addresses at the beginning of the letter as those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Now, think about that for a second. This is Corinth he's writing to. Sanctified in Christ Jesus? Corinth? What Paul saw was that Corinth was sanctified in Christ Jesus, not because they have lived up to the expectations, but because God has gifted them. And he exhorts them to live into who they are, not to become what God expects them to be. Does that make sense? I'm going to talk a little bit about paganism in a second. Paganism is this bottom-up, living up to God's expectations, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is receiving the gift. 
is being sanctified because of the work of God and then living into, called to be saints, living into who we already are. So Corinth, as big a mess as it was, was in Christ because of their faith in him. So a little bit of background to 1 Corinthians 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Corinth is in the the center of pagan worship. So the Corinthians are, by and large, coming out of paganism. They're coming out of this worldview that says, it's my job to figure out what the gods demand and meet those demands in order to curry the favor of the gods. So in some cases, it's, to avoid the gods being angry in other places. At other times, it's to try to actually get positive regard from the gods so the gods will bless, etc. But at the heart of paganism is this bottom-up religion that says it's my job to figure out what god or the gods want or demand and then live it out. I would argue that that's also much of Western Christianity. That Western Christianity in many places is this thin veneer over paganism. That the desire to be part of the New Testament church, in some ways, was a pagan impulse. If you've underlined all of the imperatives, all of the commands in the Bible but haven't underlined all of the places where God has worked on your behalf? You're a pagan. That's where I was for so much of my life. In fact, my spiritual director one time, when I was in seminary, uh, we were having a conversation, the same conversation I had, you know, like over and over and over and over, you know, about really needing to experience the grace of God, blah, blah, blah. And he finally just stopped in the middle of our time, and he said, give me your Bible. I'm like, what? He said, give me your Bible. And he opens my Bible, and he leafs through it, and he says, just as I expected. Like, like a doctor, right, who just, like, took an x-ray, you know, and, and he's like, yes, just as I expected. You are really sick. He says, he says, just as I expected. And I said, what? He goes, you've underlined all the commands. But you haven't underlined the story of what God has done for you. That's paganism. Paganism dressed up as Christianity. This desire to please God, to curry his favor. And so God is writing, Paul is writing, to this church in Corinth, that's coming out of paganism. And in their pagan culture, they've done sacrifices. They've gone to the Oracle of Delphi. They've, ex- they've seen ecstatic utterance. They've seen prophecies. They've seen all of that kind of stuff. And they've also had an experience of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's writing to this community that's syncretistic. It's, it's taken the pagan experience and the Christian experience and woven them together. And Paul is trying to pull them apart, trying to separate out those two impulses to help them understand how the Christian thing actually works. So, as he does that, he says these three things, big chunks of things. 
verses 4 through 6. He looks at unity and diversity. And so he says to them, there are a variety of giftings, charismata, but the same spirit. There are a variety of ministries or services, but the same Lord. And there is a variety of of energizings, of working, but the same God works in all of them. So he says, here's where this is all going to come together. As you're coming together as the church, you need to understand that your unity is grounded in the Trinity. Your unity is grounded in your relationship with God. So all of these ministries and all of these gifts and all of this experience that differs person to person is coming from the same source, from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so the diversity of gifting, the diversity of ministries, the diversity of working flows out of this unity of relationship with God, the triune God. So he says, here it is. Diverse gifts, diverse ministries, diverse workings, but the same God who's behind each and every one of those expressions. And so we as a community aren't going to find our unity in our giftings or our unity in our ministries. We're going to find our unity in our common relationship with God. Now, it is so easy to flip that on its head. Every congregation I've ever served, every congregation I know, people get excited about Jesus in a particular context, and then they're convinced that everybody should be drawn into that context. Right? You can pick whatever ministry you want. It could be Curcio. It could be Alpha. It could be altar guild, whatever it is. But we get convinced that because that's how we've encountered God, and that's how we've grown deeper, that that's how everybody should come into that relationship. And so it's, it's a little bit like the guy who fell down a well. And he's there at the bottom of the well, looks up, sees the stars, cries out to God, gets rescued, comes to know Jesus through that experience, and then spends the rest of his life pushing people down wells. (laughs) And so Paul says it's not about your experience, and it's not about the ministries, and it's not about the gifting. That's not where our unity is going to be. Our unity is going to be in our common relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay? So this is a congregation struggling with unity. And he says this is where our unity is going to be in our common relationship. Verses 7 through 11, then, he handles the whole question of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that the word he uses there for manifestations is not the word that we typically think of as spiritual gifts. So we do spiritual gift inventories, et cetera, et cetera. It's really common to do that. Nothing wrong with that. But what Paul says is, not that we're given specific gifts, but that we're given specific manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So here's a thing I want to do to kind of shift your mind in thinking about this. We tend to think of spiritual gifts the way we think about gifts. Right? If, if I give you a gift, 
then who does it belong to? It's yours, right? If I give you a gift and you decide to use it in a way that I think is kind of weird, that's all right, because I gave it to you as a gift. If you want to use your iPad as a cutting board, okay. <laughs> Not exactly why I gave it to you, but if that's the best you can do with your iPad, okay. <laughs> that's kind of how we think of spiritual gifts. We think of God saying to, like for me, God saying to Jim, Jim, here's a gift. And I say, thank you. And then I go off and use the gift willy-nilly however I want to. That is not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here is, he says, God has given each of us a way in which the Spirit shows his presence in the body so that the body can be blessed. That's not my personal gift to use however I want. It's God's presence working through me to bless the body. Okay? See the difference? So I've heard people talk about, like, you know, yeah, God has given me the gift of healing. And I, I'm always, my ears perk up, like, okay, what's coming next? And often what comes next is this bizarre thing. God has given me the, the gift of healing. And I, I have a, a unique anointing for backs. I'm like, seriously? You, you believe that? Like, God has kind of given you something that you get to use however you please, and you are particularly effective in healing people's backs. That's just bizarre, biblically. Now, here's how Paul works it. He says there's this unique way in which God flows through us by his spirit to bless the people around us. And then he gives us some examples. He says, for example, word of wisdom. Now, word of wisdom doesn't mean that God has made you smart. Word of wisdom means that God regularly gives you insights, give, makes connections or applications as you're in conversation with people in such a way that it unlocks something in them. That's a word of wisdom. It has nothing to do with you being smart or wise. Who is the wisest man in the world? Solomon, right? That's what the Bible says. Wisest man in the world. Solomon was an idiot. <laughs> there were three things that the king was forbidden to store up. God says it really clearly in Deuteronomy. Three things the king is not to allowed to get a lot of. Wives, gold, and horses. What was Solomon known for? <laughs> Wives, gold, and horses. This guy that could explain how bees work didn't get the basics of relationship with God. The word of wisdom isn't about how smart we are and how much we know. It's about God working through us in moments in people's lives 
that make connections or applications that unlock things for them spiritually. Likewise, word of knowledge. Again, it's not about human capacity. The word of knowledge isn't like every PhD has the gift of the word of knowledge. It's like, no. I've known a lot of PhDs. You know how a PhD works, right? You spend an inordinate amount of your life becoming the world's expert on the smallest piece of knowledge possible. Because, like, there are millions of PhDs that have been granted, and you have to find a piece of knowledge that nobody else has ever written on. So that means you have to unearth some extraordinarily tiny piece of knowledge. This isn't about how much you know. You may be the you might be the world's expert on some esoteric manuscript, Syriac manuscript found in some little cave somewhere. That doesn't make you knowledgeable. Doesn't even make you sellable. (laughs) In the higher education market. Don't get me started. I think it's a Ponzi scheme, but that's right. So knowledge isn't about what you know, even if you know tons. Knowledge is about the Holy Spirit revealing to you something you couldn't have known. Again, for the purpose of blessing somebody. So a great example is John 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus shows up at Sychar, has this conversation with the woman, says, call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You've had five husbands. The man you're now with isn't your husband. Now, Jesus didn't send this advanced scouting team to dig up scuttlebutt on the periphery of society. Jesus showed up at the well. The woman showed up at the well. They're having this conversation. The Holy Spirit reveals this fact to Jesus, who then shares it with the woman, and it changes her understanding of who Jesus is. That's how the word of knowledge works. Somebody might say in a service, I feel like the Lord is telling me that that there's somebody here who God wants to heal. That's a word of knowledge. And sometimes it gets really frighteningly specific. I've been in services where somebody says, I think that the Lord wants to heal somebody with a bunion on their right big toe. I mean, again, not just like a wild guess. Like, in any group of people, surely there's somebody with a bunion on their right big toe, right? And then somebody would stand up and say, that's me. They would pray, the Lord would heal. Word of knowledge. It's not about being smart. It's about being available. And the Holy Spirit manifesting his presence and power through us. Faith, likewise. It's not that God gives some people this extraordinary amount of faith. It's that at moments, God works through some people to believe things into existence. 
they trust that God is going to answer their prayer. And he does. It's not that they have this extraordinary faith. It's that the Spirit is manifesting himself through them. Gifts of healing. It's interesting to note that Paul comes back to this word charismata here, not describing all of these things, but describing this one set of gifts of healing. So here's how that works. It's not that I have the gift of healing and I get to touch you and heal you if I want to. It's that God manifests himself through me in giving a gift of healing to an individual. Now, that works as a real gift. In essence, a no-strings-attached gift. Remember the ten lepers? Jesus healed all ten of them, gave each of them the gift of a healing. They all walked off, obeying what Jesus told them to do, realized that they've been healed. One comes back. They were all healed. They all got the gift of healing. One of them used the gift of healing as a way of coming back to Jesus. Not everybody that gets healed responds by becoming a disciple. Gifts of healing. And you could go on. Working of miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation, all of those are ways that the Holy Spirit manifests his presence among us in such a way that the body is blessed. So you've got unity and diversity. You have these manifestations of the Spirit. And in the third section, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that we are baptized in one spirit into the body. And we're given the Holy Spirit to drink. There's the objective part of the ministry of the Spirit and the subjective part. Objectively, when you come to faith in Jesus and are baptized, you are baptized by the Spirit into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and into the body. You're baptized into the Trinity, and you're baptized into the body. They are inseparable. This idea of individualism that's very much of a Western thing is pagan. It's not Christian. The idea that I can have an individual relationship with Jesus without reference to the body of Christ is not biblical. It's anti-biblical. You are objectively baptized into the body. And so if you think, you know, well, the church is sort of optional. Take it or leave it. Um, I want you to test that out. Go home this afternoon and cut off your thumb. And then see how optional it is to be connected to the body. If two weeks from now, your thumb is doing great and thriving, then you can just bag the church. If, however your thumb isn't thriving, I would suggest that you stay connected to the body. Just saying. (laughs) And then, not only are we baptized into the body, but we're given the spirit to drink, one spirit to drink.
a friend of mine told me one time that, that you can kind of use this picture of standing on a mesa for a lot of things. And if you're standing on top of a mesa and you're so afraid of, of walking off that side that you keep backing up, you fall off the other side. As Anglicans, the side of the mesa that we're afraid we're going to fall off on is the side of the mesa where crazy spirit things are going to be happening. And so we're so careful to back away from the, all that kind of crazy spirit stuff. <laughs> and so here's how we treat the spirit. Paul says we're given the spirit to drink. And the way that we as Anglican Christians in the West, this isn't true of Africa and Asia, but the way Anglican Christians drink of the spirit in the West is the same way that we drink of wine at communion. Right? We're like, come Holy Spirit. It's like we're so afraid that we're going to get drunk in the spirit that it's like the spirit like touches our lips. And we're like, oh yeah, that's good. And then we get really super brave and we take Alpha and we go on the Holy Spirit weekend and we do like, I'm good. Paul says the drink of the spirit. In fact, when he talks about the spirit in Ephesians 5, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, this being the model and this being what I'm comparing it to be filled with the Spirit. Here's the thing. Manifestation of the Spirit requires an openness to the Spirit working in us and through us. Manifestation of the Spirit can't be controlled. We can't keep the Spirit tidy. Like, okay, Lord, do whatever you want as long as all the words are already printed in the bulletin. <laughs> we need to drink of the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be open to the manifestation of the Spirit in ways that undoubtedly scare the bejabbers out of half of you. I don't know what that's going to look like. I do know that God is not going to do anything without the purpose of blessing, without the purpose of equipping, without the purpose of drawing us closer to him. But I will tell you that the side of the mesa we're in danger of falling off of is not the wild-eyed, rolling-in-the-aisles side. And so if anything, I would encourage you to take steps in that direction. Because for most of you, the side you're most likely to fall off of is this formalism, this we want to know everything that's going to happen, we want to be able to anticipate, we want to be able to control. So step away from that 
towards an abandoned openness to the Spirit. Drink of the Spirit. Don't just sip. So what do you do with all of that? Well, first we need to acknowledge the working of the Trinity in our midst. We need to recognize that there are different giftings by the same Spirit, that there are different services, different ministries by the same Lord, that there's different energizings by the same God who energizes all of it, and that our unity resides in our relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then embrace your gifting. Recognize that God has wired you in a particular way. You have a particular kind of way that God wants to manifest his presence through you. It might be through wisdom. It might be through knowledge. It might be through faith. It might be through tongues. It might be through interpretation. It might be through leadership, service, helps. Whatever it is, however God has wired you, learn that about yourself and make yourself available to God to bless his people through you. And then third thing, bless the church. Use how God has wired you to bless the people around you. If you don't bring your particular manifestation of the Spirit, we don't experience the Spirit fully. So bring it, whatever it is. And then drink deeply of the Spirit. Drink deeply of the Spirit. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this letter to this crazy church. Thank you for helping us to see that like them, we're sanctified by your work, not ours. And Lord, I pray that right now you would be working in the hearts and minds and imaginations of your people to draw us more deeply into love of you more fully into the experience of your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and do the work that you want to do in us so you can do your work among us and through us and so that you can be this spring of living water that comes up into our hearts and splashes into the lives of the people around us. We bless you, Lord God, and invite you to come and move in ways beyond our imagination. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.